The Week in Doubt, episode 283. Hey everyone, I'm Phil Albertelli, the host of The Week in Doubt, a podcast for atheists, agnostics, and whoever. I was gonna say let's just jump right into the news, but uh, still trying to find my groove. It's kind of a strange day. It's not even 8 o'clock yet, and I'm sitting down on a Friday morning to record the show. I had to get up extra early to drive a family member to have a medical procedure done. And then in a couple of hours, I'm probably going to have to run back out and pick them up. And then most likely I'm going to get called into work, and that's a whole other thing. For the first time in a while, I've been experiencing a bad flare-up of my post-tibial tendonitis. So I've been hobbling around like a peg-legged sea captain all week on a on this bad foot that feels like someone drove a railroad spike through it. Yeah, so doing manual labor in that condition, definitely not good. And uh, I'm doing the old uh, water bottle trick now where you leave a water bottle in the freezer and then you uh, roll it under the arch of your foot. And I was going to mention how, uh, you know, there's this prestigious hospital in my area called the Leahy Clinic. And the first news story I hear when I when I wake up is uh, that supposedly someone got caught hiding a, uh, a spy cam or they had rigged up a spy cam and it had been in there for a while and someone found it in one of the bathrooms there. So uh, just weird day, weird world, but uh, let's get on with the show. So this first story is about a rabbi who says that it would be kosher to eat cloned pork or more specifically, pork grown in a lab. At first blush, the whole thing seems kind of amusing or surreal, which is why I wanted to cover it. But as the rabbi points out, there could be some important implications. Cloned or lab-grown meat in general could mean less animal suffering while providing an additional food resource to aid in the fight against uh, hunger. One of the first things that came to my mind was... Whether it's grown in a lab or not, if it's meat derived or cultivated from cloned pig cells, wouldn't that mean that in a sense it's still pig flesh and thusly still prohibited by Jewish dietary restrictions? Not that necessarily matters to me at the end of the day. I was just trying to work it out logically in my head. Uh, But let's read the article. Okay, and this is from the Jewish Telegraph Agency, and it looks like it's dated March 22nd. Rabbi says meat from genetically cloned pig could be eaten by Jews, including with milk. Yeah, because I think, aren't there certain Jewish dietary restrictions regarding mixing meat with milk, etc.? But anyway, so a prominent Orthodox rabbi in Israel said that meat from a genetically cloned pig would be kosher for consumption by Jews, including when eaten with dairy products. Rabbi Yuval Cherlo... Uh, I'm sure I butchered that, told Ynet in an interview published Wednesday that cloned meat is not subject to the rules that apply to the consumption of regular meat. Churlo is quoted as saying that cloned meat produced from a pig shall not be defined as prohibited for consumption, including with milk. In the interview, Churlo of the Zohar Rabbinical Organization appears to be talking about meat that is grown artificially in a laboratory from the cells of a pig, rather than meat produced from a live pig whose genetic material comes from a cell from which the pig was cloned. However, the article does not quote him as making the distinction. 
in the interview ahead of a Bar Ilan, I think it is, university symposium titled Science and Halaha, featuring a talk by Cherlo, he advocated rabbinic approval of cloned meat so that people would not starve to prevent pollution and to avoid the suffering of animals. And to be honest, those all sound like excellent reasons to me. And uh, he continues by saying, When the cell of a pig is used and its genetic material is utilized in the production of food, the cell in fact loses its original identity and therefore cannot be defined as forbidden for consumption, Cherlo said. It wouldn't even be meat, so you can consume it with dairy. And I think that's a really interesting philosophical question. Does a cloned cell lose its quote-unquote identity, in a sense? Are cloned pig cells used to make synthetic, I guess, meat or, you know, lab-grown pork, no longer pig cells? I definitely think you could make an argument against that. You know, logically, I think you could argue that they still are pig cells. But as someone who isn't religious, who isn't bound by what I see as kind of arbitrary religious prohibitions and doesn't think that others necessarily should be either, especially when said prohibitions could stand in the way of something that's beneficial to mankind and animal kind at large. Uh, We, of course, are animals. You know, it doesn't really matter to me whether uh, synthetic pork or however you want to phrase it violates certain religious dietary restrictions. But I guess if saying or convincing people that it doesn't violate those restrictions helps get religious people on board with something, once again, that's beneficial to mankind and animals, then, hey, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to argue. And I really do have a respect for Judaism and a respect for, believe it or not, tradition, as long as said traditions aren't harmful, you know? I don't know if this is true or not, but I know I've heard numerous times that there's this theory that perhaps the Jewish prohibition against eating pork can be traced back to concerns about trichinosis or or something like that, you know, meaning that ancient peoples in, in that part of the world may have realized that you could get sick from eating pork, you know, um, In this day and age, I I obviously don't think that's nearly as much of a concern. Although, even now, you still have to be careful and thoroughly cook pork before you eat it. But generally speaking, I I don't think it's a big concern. So, uh, I I actually think if people are going to feel or, or have any reservations about eating pork... I think the more justifiable reservation is uh, out of ethical concerns, you know, for the animal rather than um, for fear that you might violate some age-old religious prohibition. All right, so on to the next story, and this one is from Christian Today. And I think uh, I think my, my friend uh, Crocoduck sent me this one via Twitter. It's entitled, Professor Creates 3D Image of Jesus Based on Shroud of Turin. And this is dated uh, March 29th. So it begins, an Italian professor has created a 3D image of Jesus based on the Shroud of Turin, declaring it the precise image of what Jesus looked like on earth. 
Giulio Fonti, who teaches mechanical and thermal measurements at the University of Padua and has studied the shroud for several years, unveiled the 3D image last week. From now on, he may no longer be depicted without taking this work into account, said Fonti. Uh, let's see. According to our studies, Jesus was a man of extraordinary beauty, long-limbed and very robust. He was nearly 5 feet 11 inches tall, whereas the average height at the time was around 5 feet 5 inches. And he had a regal and majestic expression. Fonti explained that the 3D image allowed for the many wounds on the figure believed by many to be Jesus to be examined. I counted 370 wounds from the flagellation without taking into account the wounds on his sides, which the shroud doesn't show because it only enveloped the back and front of the body, he said. Okay, so if you're a really long-time listener of this show then you'll probably know that I have this kind of fascination with the Shroud of Turin. Even though I'm a, uh, a non-believer, I was raised Catholic. And I can remember being a, a young kid, maybe in my teens, and watching documentaries on the Shroud of Turin and finding myself kind of rooting, yeah, probably in my teens, <laughs> kind of rooting that the Shroud would be proven real. By the end of the episode, I wanted it to be real, like Bigfoot enthusiasts want Sasquatch to be real or whatever. You know, I'd, I'd kind of watch these documentaries and hope against hope that they'd have definitive proof. And that, you know, somehow by the end of the episode, they'd be displaying empirical evidence for the divinity of Jesus Christ in the form of the authenticity of the Shroud of Turin, you know. But, you know, unfortunately, there's lots of reasons to question the Shroud's authenticity. Um, the biggest one is probably that I think when the initial carbon dating was done, the results placed the Shroud somewhere in the Middle Ages. And I believe uh, the main scientific consensus is still that it's most likely a medieval quote-unquote forgery. Uh, you know, it's just some kind of man-made relic from the Middle Ages. Apologists will argue that the carbon dating results could have been skewed by, uh, you know, accidentally testing a spot where the shroud had been repaired at some point, or that it, the results could have been thrown off by uh, smoke damage or other contaminants, or, or sometimes they'll just, you know, they'll attack the science of carbon dating itself. I think another factor for me is, and I remember having this kind of light dawns on Marblehead moment where all of a sudden I was like, wait, if the shroud was wrapped around the body and the image on the shroud, this imprint was left by some release of divine energy or light or whatever, why wouldn't the sides of the body be included in the image? You know, when you stretch out the shroud, you can see the front of the body and the back of the body with the two images almost, you know, kind of touching at the head. Um, but if, if it really was wrapping a real body, wouldn't you expect the image to include the sides as well, so that when you unfolded the shroud, the image should look stretched out or distorted, not this perfect representation of the front 
and the back of a body. Yeah, but the, uh, the battle over the Shroud's authenticity still continues. Skeptics come up with new ways to debunk it, and believers come up with new reasons why it might still be valid. I haven't been keeping up with the Shroud much lately, but I think the last time I watched a documentary and saw something new regarding someone trying to prove the Shroud's validity, it had to do with someone saying that, you know, if you really looked, you could see what appears to be the images of some kind of, you know, flower or or plant life on the Shroud that could be traced back to the ancient Middle East or something like that. How that theory ended up panning out, I don't know. As for explanations about how the Shroud could have been made, uh, I've heard everything from someone, you know, in the Middle Ages possibly using some kind of camera obscura technique, or uh, it could be something as simple as baking a sheet on uh, a bas-relief or something like that. Um, I I don't know. But however it was created, I tend to, to the disappointment of my younger self, uh, believe that, yeah, it probably is just a man-made product of the Middle Ages. The reason why I didn't offer it simply being a painted image, you know, as an explanation is that it was discovered by Sterp, the Shroud of Turin research project back in the 70s, I think, that although I think there were paint traces on the Shroud, including uh, red ochre and some some other pigments, um, it appeared that the image itself wasn't rendered in paint and that the image only seemed to really sit on kind of the surface of the fibers and it wasn't saturated the way you'd expect if it was paint. And there's also the problem of the negative image where, you know, when you take a picture of the shroud of Turin, I believe this was discovered by Italian photographer. I think is it Secundo Pia? I think it is. Uh, When you take a picture of the shroud of Turin, then look at, the negative, that's when all the detail really shows through. Uh, And that's why I think people come up with explanations like a camera obscura or um, some kind of bas-relief technique or something like that. And it's funny, I used to have correspondence with one of the Shroud of Turin Research Project members, uh, probably one of the biggest believers of the Shroud, you know, one of the most pro-Shroud people, uh, and uh, Jewish, ironically, or maybe not so ironically, since uh, Jesus would have, if he was an actual historical figure, would have been Jewish too. But uh, Barry Schwartz, a uh, really good guy. I think he's a photography expert, I think. And yeah, uh, like I was saying, he was, he was a member of the original Sterp team. And uh, I sent him a couple of emails back in the day, and he was good enough to respond This is when I was still kind of, I think, hoping that the Shroud was uh, real. Um, So these could have dated back to, like, maybe my early 20s or something like that. Uh, At this time, I was probably, like, a budding agnostic, but still a seeker. 
and maybe, I guess, still holding out hope in a way, you know. Um, I think without even really knowing it, without being aware that the term even existed, I probably would have been technically an agnostic atheist probably already by my late teens. And I don't think that at that point I necessarily believed in the validity of the Shroud of Turin, but maybe a part of me still wanted it to be true. And I took a kind of pleasure, I guess, or got a certain kind of satisfaction out of trying to debunk what I thought were flawed attempts to, well, debunk the Shroud. And I remember specifically one of those, which I brought up in a letter in an email to Barry Schwartz, was uh, I remember there was this woman on this uh, documentary about the Shroud I was watching who had what I still think is kind of a crackpot theory that she thought the Shroud was made during the time of Jesus, but by someone looking in the tomb with the cadaver, with the body of Jesus, you know, kind of like painting a still life, no pun intended, just staring at the body of Jesus while painting on a on a sheet. And that's how the Shroud of Turin was made, in her opinion. That was her pet theory or whatever. And the thing that jumped out about that right away to me, which I brought up to Barry Schwartz and he agreed, is that there was a prohibition against creating the likeness of living beings for ancient Jews, especially the likeness of of a human. You weren't supposed to depict living forms. And I think the, the logic or thinking behind this was that only God could create life and creating images of living beings Uh, even though Jesus would have technically been dead, I guess, but still the human body, you know, creating images of living beings was was just getting too close to trying to imitate God, you know? And I think in fairness, there may have been some exceptions because by the time of Jesus, you already had this established Hellenistic influence in the Jewish world, probably uh, more heavily in some areas than others. And you, I think archaeologists have found some Jewish structures that did have these kind of Hellenistic images of living beings in them. But generally speaking, I think that prohibition probably still held. And before I move on from the topic of the Shroud, I just remembered something I wanted to mention. So you probably remember last week I did that episode on the empty tomb, and I actually read the uh, the gospel accounts. Well, in the wake of that, my friend Crocoduck and I were joking how about how one of the accounts has I, Nicodemus, I think it is, bringing a hundred pounds of spices or whatnot to the tomb to a, a to anoint Jesus's body or for some kind of embalming purposes or whatnot. And Crocoduck actually brought up the subject of the Shroud. And if you're not familiar, uh, Crocoduck, my friend on Twitter, isn't to be confused with King Crocoduck on YouTube. And uh, I sometimes feel like if maybe you guys think Crocoduck is a figment of my imagination, or maybe he's like Vera or Maris from uh, Chairs or Frasier, you always hear about them, but you never actually see them or or, uh, hear them. (laughs) But uh, he brought up the shroud and he was saying, you know, if they put like a hundred pounds of spices or whatever around Jesus's body, 
um, would that kind of throw off the image you'd get with the Shroud or how do uh, Shroud believers reconcile that or whatever? But I found a couple of interesting passages. Let me see. This is from the Gospel of John from, uh, I think, the Living Bible uh, version. Afterwards, Joseph of Arimathea, who had been a secret disciple of Jesus for fear of the Jewish leaders, boldly asked Pilate for permission to take Jesus' body down. And Pilate told him to go ahead. So he came and took it away. Nicodemus, the man who had come to Jesus at night, came too, bringing a hundred pounds of embalming ointment made from myrrh and aloes. Together they wrapped Jesus' body in a long linen cloth, saturated with the spices, as is the Jewish custom of burial. Yeah, so it looks like, uh, even though I think Crocoduck was kind of joking, he may have actually had a point there. So are there a hundred pounds of uh, secret herbs and spices or whatever? inside the shroud with Jesus. So how could it be, you know, wrapped tightly around his body and not to sound too blasphemous or, or, or sacrilegious, but did they stuff him like a turkey to try to slow down decomposition? I, I don't know. I don't know. I just figured I'd bring that up while we we're on the subject. Or in fairness, maybe not all 100 pounds of the materials are used and they make some kind of mixture and then kind of like, soak or saturate the the uh, burial cloth with it and wrap it around the person. I don't know. Okay, so I think I'll do one last news story. And this one actually came from Crocoduck, if you, if you believe he actually exists, uh, too. Um, and it's from a website he turned me on to called themonastery.org. And uh, they they have some interesting stories. And this one's entitled, Sweet Jesus, Christians Outraged by Provocative Ice Cream Chain. And it looks like it's dated April 2nd. Yeah, and the ice cream chain is literally named Sweet Jesus. And they have some very, uh, as the title of the article implies, some very provocative ads. And the article actually begins with a picture of one such ad. And I'll actually include the image in the YouTube version so it's like a horizontal three-panel layout. And on either side, you have a picture of what looks like a young girl. Uh, there's a young girl wearing some kind of weird crown and like, uh, I don't know, faux fur cape or something, sucking ice cream off her thumb. Then in on the other side, there's a young girl who... Looks like John Benet Ramsey with uh, looks like cherry ice cream smeared all over her face or something, holding an ice cream cone. And I actually find the use of you know the strange use of kids in the ads to be more kind of off-putting or unsettling than the inclusion of religion or whatever. And then in between those two panels in the middle, it has a picture of another ice cream cone, and it says, "Eat like it's your last supper." And then it says, sweet Jesus underneath. And the T in sweet is an upside down cross. And the middle S in Jesus is like an ACDC lightning bolt. And let's see, uh, there's a caption beneath the photo. Christian groups have complained that not only is sweet Jesus offensive, but its defenders are hypocritical. We'd never allow a company called Sweet Muhammad, they point out. So why is Jesus okay? 
And I actually think they should both be fair game. I mean, there's there's no accounting for taste necessarily, but I think what is or isn't in good taste and free speech, you know, and what should be allowed by free speech are two different things. I think people should be able to give their products provocative names, names that some might even find deeply offensive to their religious beliefs or sensibilities or whatever, and then let the free market decide, you know? If the public finds the product, you know, just too offensive to the point where people aren't buying it, then so be it, and the company will fall by the wayside. But I wonder if there are any laws or rules concerning how far you can go naming a product. Are you allowed to include profanity? Could you legally have like a frozen dinner that says, great fucking chicken, in big scrolling letters <laughs> on the package and have it in the, you know, legally have it in the freezer section of your local supermarket? I have no idea. I've never really thought about that before. And speaking of Muhammad, I was going to say something that probably really would have been offensive to some or off. But, well, hey, hey, why stop now? But I was going to say, uh, maybe Sweet Muhammad might be uh, a better fit with the pictures of the young girls. Remember his underage bride? There, I said it. I said it. Uh, come at me, bro. What's <laughs> What was her name? Aisha, I think. And I know people are going to get pissed at me for making that joke, but... Damn, man. I mean, I, I think it comes from uh, the Sunni Hadith uh, sources that she was supposedly six or seven when she was married to Muhammad. And then, uh, hey, you know, the marriage wasn't consummated until she was nine. Um, I will say in fairness to uh, Muslims, though, that I don't know if this is just apologetics, but... I did hear one theory that perhaps her age was recorded as being so young because for political reasons, they were trying to um, make it look in the written account like the marriage had taken place earlier than it actually had. So I, I don't know. But taken at face value, it is pretty warped, even by... Uh, standards in the ancient world where, you know, I think sometimes it might have been the norm that women would get married uh, in their early teens or something like that. You know, I think it's suggested that, you know, that if Mary and Jesus were historical figures, that uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus, would have gotten married probably around sometime between 13 and 15 or something like that. So even by those ancient world standards. I mean, married at six or seven and marriage consummated at nine, if you take that story at, literally at face value, it's really disturbing. But I'll read a little bit more from this ice cream article before I call it quits. So it says, Toronto-based ice cream company Sweet Jesus is famous for its unconventional marketing. From humorous religious references to advertisements featuring images of vampiric children and upside-down crosses, apparently they also make great ice cream. The company enjoyed tremendous success in Canada and quickly became a widely recognized chain. But things hit a snag when Sweet Jesus decided to open several locations over the border to the south. The company's provocative imagery, which posed no issue for Canadian customers, has sparked outrage among Christian groups in the United States. 
Thousands of angry Christians quickly mobilized to protest the ice cream chain, which they claim is blasphemous and an insult to Christianity. They began circulating numerous online petitions which condemned the satanic symbolism found in Sweet Jesus' marketing efforts. The petitions also demanded that the company change its name immediately. Sweet Jesus is all about trashing Christianity and mocking the saving work of our Lord Jesus Christ. One petition states, if anything could qualify as hate speech, this is it. And then they show another weird ad featuring a kid. This time it's like a little boy, a young prepubescent kid with like, uh, he's dressed like a sailor with a pipe, but he's got like a uh, jaunty pink scarf tied around his neck. And he's drinking out of a little pink teacup that says Sweet Jesus. And they also put like uh, tattoos all over him and he's got like a black eye. And there's the Sweet Jesus logo with the upside down cross. So, I mean, obviously meant to be provocative. And the claims about satanic imagery, I mean, you know me, I have no problem with satanic imagery. I buy products from the satanic temple. Uh, Pazuzu in and of himself isn't satanic. He's an ancient kind of, you know, demonic uh, Mesopotamian deity. But, you know, still, I've got I've got a Pazuzu statue here right on my desk. Uh, I listen to a lot of dark music, etc. Um, but just keeping it real, being intellectually honest. I mean, yeah, you've got an ice cream company called Sweet Jesus with an upside down cross for a tea. I mean, you know, there's only so many ways it can be taken. I think the only kind of uh, kosher, shall we say, use of an upside-down cross, isn't there a tradition where uh, in certain circumstances an upside-down cross could actually be a symbol of St. Peter, who, according to legend, asked to be crucified upside-down because he didn't believe he was worthy to be crucified in the same manner as his lord? Uh, but my guess is they're using it in like uh, in, in the satanic like pop culture sense. And they have to know that they obviously know they're being provocative, you know. Um, so like I said, I have no problem myself with satanic imagery, but uh, I actually find it pretty entertaining. But um, but just keeping it real. I mean, yeah, come on. They know what they're doing. But that being said, I guess I'll call it a wrap. And before I close things out, I wanted to quickly give a shout out to uh, my friends, Seamus and John from the Free Thought Profit podcast. They recently launched an audio, audio only version of the podcast. I, I think it's audio only. Initially, they were only on YouTube. And they produce great content, do great interviews. So if you're looking for another, you know, skeptical, atheistic podcast to listen to, check out uh, the Free Thought Profit podcast. And as far as this show is concerned, you guys know the drill. Please like the Facebook page. Check out, uh, or you know, follow the show on Twitter. You can check out the YouTube channel. Maybe you're doing that now. If you want to help the show out monetarily, um, you can do so by going to patreon.com slash the weekend doubt and supporting the show for as little as 99 cents a month. All right, brothers and sisters, until next time.